Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning. There is a sense that we are getting closer to summer, isn't it? There's not quite such a packed out feeling as sometimes, but it is great to be together to worship God. Some words from the first letter of John at chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. God is good, God is truth, God is beauty, and we are here to praise God. So let's come to God now together in prayer. We pray together. The psalmist says, Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. Loving God, these words give us pause for thought. Can it be that there is a love better than life itself? Can it be that your love is such that we are moved to offer you our praises? We love life with all it offers. And we love you as best we are able. And so we come to you now in praise and thanksgiving. Like the psalmist, we know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That you knew us even before we were born. And that there is nowhere beyond the reach of your loving gaze. We marvel that you made us and you know us. So we praise you. Like the psalmist... We look around us at the wonderful world of which we are part and beyond it at the mysteries of the universe and we find our minds blown by the extent of your creativity and power. All of this points us towards its source, towards you and we praise you. Life is so good. There is so much beauty in creation. So much to intrigue and inspire us. And yet we know that all is not lovely. Despite our best efforts, and because of our worst failings, creation is damaged. Creatures are exploited or abused. We find ourselves less 
than we hope to be. With the psalmist, we ask you to have mercy on us according to your unfailing love, to blot out all our transgressions and to cleanse us from all iniquity. God, who is love, who removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, we praise you that in Jesus you have fulfilled all that was needed to reconnect us to you. Help us so to live and so to love that we may be his faithful followers. For in his name we pray. Amen. Today's first reading is taken from Amos, chapter 5, verses 10 to 15 and 21 to 24, on page 891. You people hate anyone who challenges injustice and speaks the whole truth in court. You have oppressed the poor and robbed them of their grain. And so you will not live in the fine stone houses you build or drink wine from the beautiful vineyards you plant. I know how terrible your sins are and how many crimes you have committed. You persecute good people, take bribes, and prevent the poor from getting justice in the courts. And so, keeping quiet in such evil times is the clever thing to do. Make it your aim to do what is right, not what is evil, so that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty really will be with you as you claim he is. Hate what is evil, love what is right, and see that justice prevails in the courts. Perhaps the Lord will be merciful to the people of this nation who are still left alive. The Lord says, I hate your religious festivals, I cannot stand them. When you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not accept the animals you have fattened to bring me as offerings. Stop your noisy songs, I do not want to listen to your harps. Instead, let justice flow like a stream and righteousness like a river that never goes dry. People of Israel, I did not demand sacrifices and offerings during those 40 years that I led you through the desert. But now, because you have worshipped images of sac- um, sorry, I'll finish it. But now, because you have worshipped images of Sakath, your king god, and of Kaiwan, your star god, you will have to carry those images when I take you into exile in a land beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is Almighty God. The second reading is from Romans chapter 12, verse nine, verses 9 to 21, on page uh, 200. Love must be completely sincere. Hate what is evil, hold on to what is good. Love one another warmly as Christian brothers and sisters and be eager to show respect for one another. Work hard 
and do not be lazy. Serve the Lord with a heart full of devotion. Let your hope keep you joyful. Be patient in your troubles and pray at all times. Share your belongings with your needy fellow Christians and open your homes to strangers. Ask God to bless those who persecute you. Yes, ask him to bless, not to curse. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Have the same concern for everyone. Do not be proud, but accept humble duties. Do not think of yourselves as wise. If someone has done you wrong, do not repay him with a wrong. Try to do what everyone considers to be good. Do everything possible on your part to live in peace with everybody. Never take revenge, my friends, but instead let God's anger do it. For the scripture says, I will take revenge, I will pay back, says the Lord. Instead, as the scripture says, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them a drink. For by doing this, you will make them burn with shame. Do not let evil defeat you. Instead, conquer evil with good. God is love. I guess that's one of the best known and most widely used phrases there is. And it's an important phrase that captures something of what God is like. But I think if we're honest, it can lead us to seeing God as some kind of indulgent benefactor who turns a blind eye to our misdemeanors and gives us most if not all, of what we want. Kind of a genie in a lamp. If we say the right things and seem to believe the right things, then God will give us what we like. So it can become something of a shock to think of this same God expressing hate. And especially when that hate is expressed towards the very people who think themselves favoured by God. Is it possible for hate to emerge from love? Can love lead to hate? How can two things we tend to think of as opposite coexist? We've heard two readings from two very different contexts written in very different times. And yet it seems that the writers have similar concerns about the lifestyle of the people amongst whom they're living. And perhaps that can help us to think a little bit about the complex relationship of love and hate. And in particular to begin to think if actually hate is not always a bad thing. So we heard a reading from the book of Amos don't know how familiar you are with the book of Amos. It's one of those I had to study when I was a student. And it begins with an introduction to Amos. 
who is rather unusual amongst the Old Testament prophets. He's not a religious man. He's not a priest. He's not a scribe. He's not a scholar. He's a shepherd. A shepherd from a place called Tekoa. And the thing about shepherds is they're kind of outside of nice society in those days. It was a hard and dangerous life. It was a life that took him outside of religious festivals because he would be busy looking after the sheep. But I suspect it's also a life that gave him opportunity aplenty to look at other people's lives. Rich people and poor people. Religious people and not-so-religious people. And if we read his short book, we get a very graphic picture of life in Israel. It's worth having a read sometime because the descriptions are amazing. People live in expensively decorated and furnished houses. There's talk of panelled walls and marble furniture, of the fine food that people enjoy and the indulgent lifestyle all of which is at the expense of others. Other people are exploited and oppressed. Life in Israel is characterized by selfishness. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And those who enjoy a good life are either oblivious to or in denial of the effect that their wealth has on other people. And at the same time, they are very, very religious. They keep all the feasts and festivals. They make all the right sacrifices. Quite probably amongst them, the sheep that Amos was looking after. And they busily keep up the appearance of religious orthodoxy while living lives that completely conflict with that. And so when God speaks through Amos, what is said is, It's shocking. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your services of worship. I will not accept your sacrifices. Stop singing, go out, sort out your lives so that they honour me. That is what matters to me. It seems that the people living in Israel have become comfortable and complacent, and they've completely forgotten their own history, forgotten how they were oppressed slaves in a foreign land, and now they are oppressing other people. Contrary to the law of God that they think they're keeping all so faithfully. The God who is love, who loved these people, looked at the way they were living and hated it. The way they lived just contradicted any understanding of love. They were selfish, they were greedy, they wanted more and more material wealth, irrespective of what that might do to other people. Today, it's the end of Christian Aid Week, and it's worth us taking a moment or two to ponder how we might find ourselves cast in the role of the wealthy oppressor? How busy are we acquiring more and more stuff 
replacing things that aren't worn out because we could get a better one or this year's model one. Enjoying more and more luxuries without giving any thought to the humanitarian or ecological impact of that. How often, if we're honest, do we complain about rising prices without stopping to think why the prices are going up? How aware are we of the hidden costs of the bargains that we enjoy? We all like those uh, dine-in for two for £10 or £5 or £7.50, depending where you go, offers. We all like cheap clothes. We all like to be able to get a last-minute break. I spend ages looking for the cheapest train tickets. But how much do we think about the impact that has on other people? People far away, for sure. But also our neighbours who live here in Glasgow. How much are we busy making our own lives more comfortable and more pleasurable when actually just a few miles away, or maybe even next door, is somebody who can't make ends meet? Do we even know what the issues are, what the questions are? Or how much have we just abdicated our responsibility because we live in a country that has a good social infrastructure? Good, but not perfect. Good, but not necessarily that which God would desire. It's great that after the service we have an opportunity to buy cakes to support the work of Christian Aid. And it's brilliant that the children are busy doing that for us. But for us as adults, it's more complicated than that, isn't it? How much thought do we give to the people who produce the sugar and the cocoa and the flour that goes into them? Or about the welfare of the animals that provide the eggs and the milk? You see, I think we have to move beyond the kind of simple feel-good that we've supported this or that charity and start thinking, really, what does it mean for us as Christians? We were reminded by Carl so brilliantly that God's made everything and God loves everything. We can't do everything. We can't make the world perfect on our own. But all of us can do something. Just a few words on worship that pleases God. In the earliest times, there were no special places where people went to worship God. There were no temples, no synagogues, no churches. There were no specific rituals for worship. There were no hymn books. There was no written Bible or Old Testament, as we would call it. Abraham and Moses and the other early lovers of God just worshipped wherever they happened to be. Up a hill, by a river. In the desert. When David wanted to build a splendid temple, God said, No, thank you. I've lived in a tent all this time, or been worshipped in a tent all this time. I don't need a temple. And when the temple was built, it becomes clear why God wasn't so keen on the idea. The temple itself became more important than its purpose. God isn't any more impressed by beautiful buildings than simple functional ones. 
God actually wouldn't be any happier if we were worshipping through that wall in that sanctuary than God is with us worshipping here, or in fact, if we worshipped outside in the street. God is not going to be impressed because we sing louder or more in tune. God is not interested in whether we have an organ or a piano or a worship band or a praise band or an orchestra. Making things more comfortable and more beautiful might please us, but won't necessarily please God. Do you know, actually, I think God would be happier with a slightly shabby, functional hall that shows hospitality to everybody who walks in the door, rather than a multi-million pound sanctuary that's used for one hour a week. Some people think I'm anti-church buildings. I'm not. My question is, what do our church buildings say about God? What do they say about us? Is God going to be impressed by some fancy building? Or is God going to be impressed by a building that is used in line with the kingdom? And is God impressed with what happens here on one hour on a Sunday more than God is impressed with what happens the other 167 hours a week. Because worship is as worship does, and love is as love does. Now, I'm not telling you anything there you don't know, but sometimes it's good to remind ourselves that what happens on a Sunday is important, but it's only part of a much bigger whole And we can say the right things and sing the right things and sign up to the right things. But actually, if it makes no difference when we walk out of that door, it's a waste of time and God ain't interested. So let's move on to Romans. A very different context. The early church, people who lived in fear of arrest and execution people who were following Jesus in a hostile context. People perhaps were rich, but also may have been poor. Certainly some of them were slaves. Some of them were women. Some of them were foreigners. Some of them had interesting domestic arrangements by the rules and norms of their time. But these were the people who formed this little community. And Paul uses here the image of a human body suggesting the interconnectedness of all people and their lives. My actions and my attitudes affect all of you. And all of your actions and your attitudes affect each other and affect me. We're not in this on our own. It is together. How I am affects you, how you are affects me, and so on. After urging them to employ their gifts in the service of the gospel, Paul starts to talk about love in action. And he says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Again, the word hate is an attitude to be approved, provided the object of that hate is consistent with an overarching premise of love. I'll say that again because it's me trying to show off and use a complicated sentence. Hate is an attitude to be approved, provided its object is consistent with an overarching premise of love. 
hate evil and live a life of love. There are a lot of things there, and we can't go into them all unless you want to be here till next week, which I'm sure you don't. But can I suggest it's a passage worth revisiting time and again, because each time there's something new to spot about this love, life of love to which we are called. I wonder when you were listening to that passage what struck you today. I wonder what it might be that if it was written in God's voice, as Amos did, God might say, do you know what, I love it when you do this. This is what really thrills me when you're doing this kind of thing. A few things that struck me. I love it when you share with people who are in need. A call to care for people less fortunate than ourselves. Perhaps by giving to Christian aid, certainly. But also be on the lookout for those around us who may be less affluent or less privileged. It's not so long ago I had the privilege to go to the Glasgow Poverty Truth Commission final gathering and be reminded of the situation here in Glasgow. There are people who do amazing things in tough places who have very little materially, but who love. People who are constantly told you can't achieve that. Intelligent children who will be told, don't bother studying at school because you're not going to make anything of yourself. How do we speak love into that? How do we make a difference to those people? And last Sunday evening, Matt Grady was here talking to us about Christian aid. And I was really struck when he spoke of us buying more clothes when our wardrobes are already full. And yet there are other people who have nothing. Or we clear out the things that we don't like and we take them to that shop that pays you for your clothes because we think, well, that's great because we'll have some money to buy more nice things. And other people just don't have enough. There are people here in Glasgow who tonight will go to bed hungry. And most of us we'll probably be throwing out some food today. Poverty, hunger, injustice. These are evils we are called upon to hate. But just hating them isn't enough. If it doesn't turn us to love in action, then frankly, it's a waste of energy. Perhaps God might say, I love it when you practice hospitality. I think that Hillhead is a hospitable church, a welcoming church, a friendly church. But it's good to be reminded that that's part of what we are called to do. And it's also good to be challenged to think, just what does hospitality mean? It means opening the doors and opening our hearts to people who might just abuse that hospitality. You know, they might come in and make the premises a bit dirty. They might break the cups. They might lie to us. They might steal from us. They might challenge our understandings of what it means to live life as a Christian. Paul says, associate with people of low position. Don't be arrogant think that you're right all the time. Be willing to learn 
willing to change. God says, I love it when you learn empathy. When something good happens to us or to someone else, we should celebrate with them, not allowing any envy or any bitterness to creep into our hearts. We shouldn't say, oh, I wish I could do that. I wish that happened to me. We should go, that's fantastic. Let's celebrate with you. And when someone is suffering or struggling, we should come alongside them and share their grief without falling into that temptation, saying, oh, do you know, and for me, it's like this. So much worse for me than for anybody else. My predecessor at my old church used to talk about POM disease, poor old me. People who always can tell you how much worse it is for them. But empathy, love for one another, expressed in enjoying other people's delight and sharing other people's struggle, is one of the things that we are called to do, and which I believe brings happiness to God. Sometimes empathy will take us beyond what we've actually experienced, what we can understand, but we are called to try to do that. And God says, I love it when you live peacefully and in harmony, not taking revenge. Do you know, I think sometimes we're so busy being nice Christian people that we confuse peace and harmony with burying our heads in the sand and avoiding tough issues. Sometimes, and I'm certainly guilty of this, we try to avoid confrontation. Sometimes, true, I try to please everybody and that doesn't work either. Sometimes we have to bite our tongues and let things go. And sometimes we have to stand up and say what we think. Learning to live and let live isn't easy because actually every single one of us believes that we're right. And sometimes my right might be your wrong and your right might be my wrong. So learning to live peaceably together as parts of one body is not easy. It's a challenge for all of us because I'm affected by your choices, your actions and you're affected by mine. To hate evil sounds easy. We can all come up with something that we think is evil. To say we love the sinner and hate the sin is easy because that allows us to keep our own prejudices and our own self-righteousness rather than actually engaging with complex questions. We can just say, well, I love you, but I don't agree with what you're doing. That's just easy, isn't it? How about, I love you, and I'm going to think about what it is that I'm struggling with. Paul tells us to cling on to what's good, to be hospitable, to be peaceable, to be empathic, to be generous. So the evil to be hated, therefore, is being inhospitable, vengeful, self-centered, and greedy. So maybe we each need to examine our own hearts before we look at others. We're not always going to get it right. Of course we're not. We're human. We get things wrong. 
But I'm reminded of something in my favorite book of the Bible, James, that says this. Love covers over a multitude of sins. God's love, perfectly manifest in Christ Jesus, covers over our sins, wipes them out, makes them as nothing. Now, that's not an excuse to carry on being selfish or greedy or vengeful or spiteful or inhospitable. But it is the reassurance that even when our best efforts fail, all isn't lost because God's love revealed in Christ gives us a new chance. Love, then, is not a feeling, it's an attitude. It's an attitude that leads us to be hospitable, to be generous, to be empathic, to be caring, to be willing to learn. Perhaps the last word, though, should go to one of the other minor prophets, Micah, who knows about the tension of worship and action. Famous words, you can probably join in with me. What does the Lord require of you? This, only this. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. May we who name Christ as Lord aspire to live that to the full. Amen. And so now we come with our prayers for others. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we find it difficult to live the faith we profess. It's hard enough to live in harmony with those we like and who are like us, let alone attempt to fulfill Christ's command that we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. By your Spirit's assistance, may our prayer be more than mere words, more than wishful thinking, Instead, may our prayers transform our living. We pray first of all for those we find it difficult to like. For the people we know who have the ability to rub us up the wrong way, to irritate us just by being there. Help us to see them as you do, made in your image and likeness, loved and lovely. Show us how we can be as Christ to them. We pray for the people groups that challenge us, perhaps because their lifestyles offend or frighten us, perhaps because they intimidate us, perhaps because their values are different from ours. Help us to see them as you do, made in your image and likeness, loved and lovely. Show us how we can be as Christ to them. We pray for nations we find it difficult to understand, perhaps because they're powerful, Perhaps because their style of government is different from ours. Perhaps because their worldview seems to contradict ours.
Help us to see them as you do, made in your image and likeness, loved and lovely. Show us how we can be as Christ to them. As far as it depends on us, help us to live peacefully and in harmony with all people, especially those who challenge us. We pray for our friends in the Church of Scotland as their assembly takes place this week. That love, empathy, hospitality, peace and mutual respect may shape their deliberations and decision making. We pray especially for Scott Rennie who finds himself thrust into the centre and as the focus of people's diverse opinions. May he know your peace at this time, and may justice be done. At the end of Christian Aid Week, we pray for all involved in that work, from the volunteers who deliver and collect envelopes, to the overseas partners administrating large projects, from those who receive the aid to those who serve as trustees managing the funds of the charity. Help them all to live a sincere love, hating evil and clinging to good. We remember in the silence those known to us who are unwell at this time or who may face many challenges and trials of which only they or we are aware. Surround them with your love. Uphold them in your arms. And show us how we may be the physical expression of that loving embrace. The challenge of being kingdom people, of living daily the hope of the eschaton, is impossible for us to do alone. So we pray that you would strengthen and renew each one of us to play our part in the body that is your church. Hear our prayers, which we offer in faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.